0: The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Spring Seminar, Medical Issues and Biblical Counseling. All right, some housekeeping. I am on Twitter at RunningDoc, R-U-N-N-I-N-G-D-O-C, so you can follow me on Twitter if you wish. I tweet about a lot of things, Um, often scripture and and then biblical counseling issues. then sometimes just my observations about life and running. And um, I'm on Facebook at uh, C. Hodges Run, or Charles D. Hodges, Jr. And I have a website called goodmoodbadmood.com where I blog on occasion. I haven't been exactly very religious about it, I guess, or legalistic about it. Or, no. Anyway, um, the um, but I, there, there are a lot of... Uh, blogs that I put there that are over a lot of subjects that I think you might find useful. And um, so I encourage you to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and go look at my blog. Books, all right? Last round for books. Uh, Ed Welch, ADD, uh, good writer. You should buy this. If they run out of them, uh, uh, ask them how you can get them from them. This is Parenting Your ADHD Child by Rita Jameson. Rita uh, spent 30 years educating children with these kinds of struggles. And she, uh, we'll talk about it as the lecture goes forward, but she talks about how you train kids. And, you know, we're not talking about somebody who's pied in the sky and never done it. This woman did it uh, day in and day out for 30 years. And when she speaks, you can understand that she knows what she's talking about. All right? So, parenting your ADHD child by Rita Jameson. If you don't get anything else, get that. Give Them Grace by uh, Lise Fitzpatrick, excellent book. Mark Shaw has written a good book about addiction-proofing your children, Uh, another good book. It has some import about this regard, because quite frankly, we know we're currently in the midst of an opioid epidemic. Our next epidemic in the United States will be amphetamines. The reason why is because we're prescribing them hand over fist to children and then to adults. Uh, And the abuse of amphetamines is considerable and far-ranging. The thing that always mystifies me about amphetamines and ADHD in children uh, is that I can get public service announcements on television about um, crystal meth amphetamine and how dangerous it is is, and how it will make your teeth fall out, scar your face up, kill you eventually before it's over with. And then I can flip to the next channel and there's a a station telling me that I ought to put my child on amphetamines for ADHD. You know, it is, uh, what people fail to understand is that these are one in the same group of drugs. You know, the crystal methamphetamine scourge that we fear so much in the nation is the same kind of drug as the amphetamines that are used to treat uh, children and adults for ADHD. Then, Shepherding Your Child's Heart. Last book, Ted trip, Shepherding Your Child's Heart. Uh, a good resource for how to bring up your younger children. All right, now, onward i got to remember, oh, let's put him there, okay. I once talked to a Christian lady um, who had an ADHD child and, and her experiences of raising that son who was labeled with ADHD. His life had been pretty routine up until the age of three, and when he hit the age of three, it just seemed like something went out of gear or in a different gear. And every place and in any group setting in which he was, it was a problem. It was a problem at school. It was a problem in Sunday school. Um, he, his life took the common pathway for children today, um, first through his doctor's office and then through a psychiatrist and a neurologist. He was treated with several different kinds of medicines, all of which seemed to help initially. But then, subsequently, which didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference in his life. After three years of struggling in a private school, they decided to put him in a public school because, as most of you know, if you if you go to a public school and you have a label, I mean, you know, a DSM diagnosis, then they'll get more help in the classroom. And they thought maybe if they had more help in the classroom, that he would do better. Um, that didn't work either. Uh, he if things just con- continued to worsen. Then uh, the couple, uh, the dear Christian couple, made some enormously important decisions that changed their lives and changed the child, their son's life. They changed many things to deal with the problem that the boy faced, but the one thing that seemed to matter most to the mother was how they decided to think about the boy. And she said, my son is not broken. I do not have to fix him. That was her statement, and that was what guided her life and that child's life from that point forward. My son's not broken. I don't need to fix him. Much of what we do in medicine today for ADHD is centers around the idea that the child has some sort of defect, some sort of brain defect, and that we as physicians and educators and counselors ought to come up with a medical way to intervene and fix it. Um, This mother eventually rejected that idea completely. She decided that her son was different and that he responded to group settings in a different way, and he responded to education differently, but that it wasn't a disease. Proverbs 22.6 took on a completely different meaning for her. Instead of raise, training up her child in a way that would suit the folks who had to deal with him in school or in Sunday school, you know, it, it, it came. the issue became, how am I going to educate my child? How am I going to arrange for education for my child in a way that he will learn? Um, This required the parents to make some big, considerable changes in life. She was a psychiatric nurse working full-time, and she decided at that point that she was going to stop full-time work and come home and work full-time taking care of her son. Uh, They took her son out of traditional classroom education and brought him home. Uh, she said their, their first attempt was, a, was kind of miserably a failure because what they tried to do was set up a traditional classroom of one in the family room. And the son didn't respond to that any better than he responded to the, the classroom of 30. You know, the, uh, he, she said it took him a year before he was willing to learn anything. Um, she, the boy was smart. He was extraordinarily smart, which probably was the reason why he couldn't sit still. You know, school was essentially a bore. He, um, they, they gave him a computer. I, I don't exactly know what his age, but he wasn't all that old. And they didn't put any internet um, uh, software on it, because they thought, rightly so, that that was a danger to him. <clears throat> and what they found out later was that he wrote his own. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, the boy figured out how to, to write his own code for, the, yeah, this kid was really smart. And eventually they found out that he, he without their knowledge or help, had started a business and was uh, making websites for other people for money. And they, they became concerned that his diet might have some bearing on his behavior, so they took him off of all foods that had any artificial dye and preservatives in it. And you know, while everybody's shaking their head up and down, please understand, this is very individual. You know, This is per child. This is not the a solution for every kid who ever has attention problems. This, this is very specific to the child. But for this child, it was very important. Because as soon as she did that, her Sunday school teachers sent her a note and said, I don't know what you did, but don't quit. You know, the, the unmanageable child suddenly became uh, far more manageable. They had him tested for allergies, which once again is very individual. You know, we're, we're, I, what I'm trying to tell you is that what this, this person's solution may not necessarily be the solution to your grandchild or to your child at home. But they had him tested for allergies, decided he was allergic to wheat and casein, and took him off those as well, which made diet very difficult, but seemed to make a difference in his behavior. You know, the, the changes that they made improved the child's behavior. Um, they also made the choice to take him off medication that he had been prescribed with. And the reason why they took him off the medication was, frankly, because it wasn't doing anything. And she said, understand this, I had no trouble giving him medicine. And you should all remember the little lecture I gave you about Romans 14, I, you know, medicine is a, a Christian liberty issue. I think it's a Christian liberty choice whether you put your child on medicine for ADHD. Now, understand this. I think it's a Christian liberty choice. I do not believe it to be wise, wise at all. I, I, I oppose it. I won't do it. So, but you know, I'm, I'm, you, I'm not being critical of people who do. I'm just saying, you know, if you are asking me as a physician what I think is wise or unwise about it, that would be my medical opinion and she said that had it worked she and i would have never been talking because she would have been more than happy to give him one pill two pills a day for the rest of his life had things gone well things did not go well and that was why 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 we had even the opportunity to talk Uh, she did tell me that um, the young man is now an adult he has several business interests that seem to run in whatever distracted direction his mind goes you all ever heard of Hurley surfboards? Yeah, I think he does, uh, or was doing it the last time I talked to her, computer design for for Hurley. You know, that's where part of his stuff ended up. He served with honor in the Marine Corps. After the second time he was wounded in combat, after the second bullet he caught, he accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord. He would say that his mind tends to run in lots of directions His mother would say that most of those directions are profitable business interests. I asked the mother what made the most difference for her son. And without hesitation, she said, it was when I decided that my son wasn't broken and that I didn't need to fix it. You know, if you don't get anything else out of this lecture, carry that sentence away with you. I would tell you that these children are different, without any doubt in my mind. That doesn't mean that they have a disease. Now, what is ADHD? Well, you have to have symptoms that last for six months and come out of three areas. Inattention, hyperactivity, or impulsivity. These these things have to last for six months. They have to be somewhat disruptive in your life. They include people who often fail to give close attention to detail, makes mistakes in homework or work, doesn't seem to listen when spoken directly to. I wonder if you can develop ADHD when you're 19. I have a grandson. Um, Doesn't follow through with instructions. Fails to finish. Actually, you have to have all of this before you're 7 for it to count. Then, has difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Avoids things that they dislike. Reluctant to engage in tasks that requires sustained mental effort. Anything you have to stick with. Loses things that they have to have in order to do their their tasks, or their work. Um, Often easily distracted by extraneous stimuli, like my cousin said, squirrel or something like that. Yeah, I I think that's a cartoon or something, isn't it? Yeah. Then um, uh, forgetful about daily activities. Uh, uh, Then hyperactivity. Uh, Often they fidget, squirm with their hands and feet in the seat, leave their seat in the classroom. Uh, I had my cousin Jimmy, he's with the Lord now. He died in a motorcycle accident about three years ago. Um, when he was a young man, he would have fit all of this. And I can remember him telling me that one day his mother took him to school. And that was when they had windows that you could actually open in buildings. And uh, it was on the first floor. And the teacher sat him down in a seat, and, which was by the window, and turned around to do something else. And when she turned around, my cousin Jimmy was gone. You know, he figured out what school was all about, and he left right out the window. Um, If someone had known that Jimmy's ability to learn was different, his outcome in life might have been completely different. And it wouldn't necessarily mean that he would have had to have taken medicine in order to do it. My my cousin Jimmy needed to be doing something that he put his hands on as opposed to sitting in a seat. Um, Runs about and plays. Climbs excessively in situations where it's not appropriate. Has difficulty playing or engaging in leisure activities quietly. Emphasis on the word quietly. Um, And then often talks excessively. When it comes to hyperactivity and impulsivity, they blurt out answers before anybody else can. Excuse me, blurt out answers before anyone else can. They have difficulty waiting their turn, and they often interrupt and intrude on others. All of these things have to happen before the age of seven. It has to cause impairment in at least two settings, like uh, school, church, or home. Um, uh, And there has to be clear evidence that this is significant impairment. It just can't be a little bit of a problem. And it can't be due to some other kind of psychiatric diagnosis. Those are the criteria. Now, what is the problem with all of this? Well, you know, the problem is that many, if not the majority of boys can meet at least six of these criteria at the age of five when most kids are being entered into full day kindergarten today, at least in my, in my state in Indiana. So you, so you have a description of normal, normal childhood behavior for at least half the kids who are in school. Now the question then comes up, is this a disease or just an important difference? Well, you know, when it comes to making the diagnosis, uh, subjectivity is the rule. The way this diagnosis is made is vitally important. From 2003 to 2011, the number of children and teens diagnosed in the United States rose 43 percent, up to 12 percent of the U.S. population for teens. And the way it's diagnosed is you compare their behavior to a uh, the set criteria in the DSM-5. You have rating scales. You have the rating scales to the teachers. You hand the rating scales to the parents. They um, they make the observation. And then uh, the, then generally what happens is that, you know, the child is sent off to the physician with a note from the school. There are no physical or neurologic or laboratory findings that are diagnosed, diagnostic for ADHD. Aside from the list of behaviors and the self-rating scales, there's no agreed upon testing that can easily confirm or deny the diagnosis. As one article I read this week said, there are no physiologic markers or lab tests that can be used to make the diagnosis of ADHD. This is completely a clinical diagnosis. So we have no pathology. Um, there's no clearly defined change at the cell level that accounts for the behavior. Um, the um, MRI scanning uh, what do um, MRI scanning and um, tell us? Uh, I, first off, I can tell you that MRI scans are not indicated in um, in to make a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, and the reason why they're not indicated is because. Um, it's considered a clinical diagnosis, and they cost too much. They're like, you know, anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000. And then there's radiation and everything else that goes along with it. And so nobody advocates that we use them. The, um, the scans do what, you know, the scans tell us that um, the, um, if you look at the brain of children, brains of children who have ADHD over time, what you'll find is that their brains develop at a slower rate than uh, children who do not have the symptoms. That's what's generally seen. But if you come back and scan them at age 18 or 19, those brains will be normal. They'll, they'll, they'll catch up, which sort of is concordant with the idea that we see where ADHD is made, uh, you know, in anywhere from 8 to 12% of the childhood population, but by the time you get to adulthood, it's down to 4%. You know, so the question is, is what did the 8% have? When you have a disease that exists in childhood but then doesn't exist in, adulthood, you know, you go, hmm, you know, the question is, is what exactly were we looking at? Um, I, I've always said that it could very well be that it's, um, it is mostly a developmental issue, a pace of developmental, <coughs> developing issue, and that if we left the children alone, didn't do anything to them much, that uh, you would come back at 18 or 19 and most of them would have resolved the issue by themselves as opposed to then having to deal with whether or not they're going to take amphetamines the rest of their, rest of their life. All right, that's what the scans tell us. So, now, are we looking at an abnormal brain or a developing brain? Well, I just told you it's a developing brain. And are there other things which have similar pictures that um, are um, similar pictures that uh, do not, that have the same symptoms but aren't particularly a disease? Well, um, right now, the big... Buzz is um, lead poisoning. Um, you know, if you've watched the evening news any time in the last two months, you know that Flint, Michigan, has a big deal about the water in Flint, Michigan. Now, I will tell you this though about the big deal in Flint, Michigan, and the lead in the water. Actually, the current levels of lead in the water in Flint, Michigan, are lower than they were in most of the United States 10 years ago. You know that um, most most people were drinking water far worse than what was in. Flint. What is in Flint currently? Don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's a good idea or that it's, but you know, it it is somewhat blown up. That's that's one way to say it. Now, what about lead in water for children? Uh, Does it cause symptoms of ADHD? Well, lead toxicity does result in children having the same kind of issues that kids would have if they had uh, if they met the criteria for attention deficit disorder. Uh, there was an article published in 2010 that uh, noted this. Um, an article published last summer though said that there was an, in- an interesting uh, different view on it and that was that actually the kids who had were most likely to have it had a genetic difference uh, that they had found that made them more susceptible to the effect of lead toxicity with regard to the symptoms of ADHD. So those are similar pictures. Um, Then, um, all right, similar pictures with other causes, still on that for just a minute. There was an article published um, uh, in um, February of this year uh, that looked at a population of 75,000 children, and I think it was in Finland, and The interesting thing that they found was uh, what they were looking at were visual problems and in children who had uh, visual uh, difficulties that could not be corrected you know they had visual impairment that couldn't be fixed what they found was that the symptoms of ADHD were at 15% uh, among them where it was only 8% among children who had normal vision so visual impairment put you in a position where you may manifest behavior that could get you diagnosed with ADHD. Now, you know, there's obviously a really good reasonable explanation for it. Why, you know, when I was a kid, they always put some people up at the front of the classroom. Why? Because if they sat at the back, they couldn't see the board. If they couldn't see the board. They couldn't participate. And it may very well be that if you're dealing with visual impairment, that you, you know, one response to it is you're absolutely bored and can't sit still. There's you know, no way for you to engage the classroom as, as it exists. Another uh, study looked at traumatic brain injury in adults and symptoms of ADHD, and um, what it said that people who had traumatic brain injury, if they filled out ADHD um, surveys, were probably 50% more likely to identify themselves as having the symptoms than those who didn't. It went from about 4% to 6.6%, you know, and, you know, so, you know, what is the point? What, what am I trying to get to with all of, all of these studies? Well. First, it's far more likely that ADHD in children is simply a collection of symptoms that are common to many disease problems as opposed to an individual disease of and by itself. You know, we have a description of behavior. We don't have any pathology. We don't know what's causing it. So anybody who meets that description for whatever cause can end up in the wastebasket diagnosis. And then second, I've already said that a disease present in childhood that goes away in adults is unusual. OK, so now, back on track. What if this is just a difference and that it's not exactly uh, a, a disease? I, um, you know, I, Are we obligated to treat this as a disease, and what are the risks if we choose to do so? Well, study, and this is a good one. Uh, This was published, um, and let me tell you this before I go on, studies. You all ought to write write this down, sciencedaily.org, all right? ScienceDaily, and I think it's .org. If you Google ScienceDaily, it will take you to it. It is a, a website that you can sign up for a web service. And every day they will send you an email. And in it will be anywhere from 10 to 50 summaries of uh, recently published scientific articles about any kind of science that, you're, that you can think of. Any, Of course, included in it will be the sciences of, of behavior, behavioral sciences. You'll see stuff about depression, ADHD, schizophrenia, Uh, and all these things, and some other things that you might even be interested in that have nothing to do with counseling. Um, And it shows up every day in your box, and it probably takes you maybe two minutes to read down through the list and see if there's anything that's interesting to you in it. I encourage you to do that. That's where I find most of the scientific articles that I use in speaking. And these summaries lead you back to the original research. You know, they, they give you the reference back to the original research. That is where I found this article. Uh, that was that came out in the summer of 2015. Um, it was done at the UC Davis School of Medicine, just up the road a bit north. And what they found as they looked at children who had ADHD was, and who were labeled with it, was that the fact that they had to be moving uh, was probably involved in their learning that um, if you, what they did was they divided uh, it, the, the, the experimental group into two groups, one, one side was labeled uh, with ADHD, the other side didn't meet the criteria, was not labeled with ADHD. And then they would put them both through situations where that while they were doing whatever they were supposed to be learning and testing, they were forced to move. You know, they couldn't sit still. They would, there would be distractions. And then, they would, put, they would switch it, and they would put them through the same kind of learning, except they would have to sit still in order to do it. And what they found was vitally interesting. What, the, what you would expect with the kids who weren't labeled with ADHD was when they were allowed to fidget or they were distracted, that their learning dropped off, and they didn't do very well on the testing. Um, and when they were allowed to sit still, they did better. With the kids who had the label of ADHD, what they found was when they were moving, they did better. And when you force them to sit still, they did worse. And so what they suggested was instead of trying to either chemically or by means of reason of force making these children sit still, that maybe what we ought to be doing is putting them on exercise balls for chairs instead so that they can rock back and forth and it didn't make very much noise and didn't bother anybody. And one of them even said, put them on an exercise bicycle and and make them ride while they are uh, reading and learning. so what that study highlights is that people identified with ADHD are, uh, probably do not have a disease. They're just simply different. They're different in the way they learn. And it only becomes a problem until when? When does it become a problem? When we send them to school. And what do we do with them in school? We make them sit down. And, and, and most boys have absolutely no interest in sitting down, hardly until they're nine years old. And what happens then is that for the first three years, they learn to hate school and teachers. And after that, their education is nearly ruined. That, that, is, that is what the outcome is. Um, when I was an intern on pediatrics, I spent three months with a, with a pediatrician who was a genuinely good physician and mentor. His name was John Hybe. Uh, and he told us, when, we, when he started to talk about ADHD one day, he told us to stay out of it. He said, men, it's it's not a medical problem. It is a school problem. That was, no, 45 years ago. And he was entirely correct. Um, So it's an educational problem because we have children who learn differently and they need a different environment in which to succeed. Change the environment as opposed to changing the child. What are contributing factors to this? Um, Let's back up a second Yes. So, is this behavior described in Scripture? Well, absolutely. You know, all, all kinds of behavior is described in Scripture, and certainly this is one that is. But also, when you think of these children, when you think of these 5, 6, 7, 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old children, how do we see them theologically? What are they? They are little sinners, just like their parents, aren't they? Yes, they are. And many of them are unsaved, unregenerate sinners. So their minds work differently. But at the same time, they desperately need to come to understand matters of faith and obedience, don't they? You know, what do these kids need? Well, it's what at least Fitzpatrick says. They need the gospel. They need it badly. Um, And They can learn. That that is the one thing that Rita Jameson will tell you in that little book. These kids can learn, and they can learn the the skills that they need um, in order to succeed in the classroom. So for these these kids, Proverbs 22.6 becomes a real challenge. The parent must understand that their child is different in the way they learn, but they are same when it comes to having a sin nature and a need for a Savior. As I said earlier, it's important to keep those two sentences in mind. Never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. Never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly does. And that second part is more important for the kids. Why? Because we, as parents, have a unique way of turning almost any kind of behavior that they have into sin. Why? Well, I told you not to do it. And since I told you not to do it, you are in rebellion. And since you are in rebellion, you are sinning, right? Right. We have the capacity to turn almost anything into sin if we choose to. And, I, and on the other hand, I would tell you, <coughs> excuse me, you don't have to make every inconvenient behavior into a matter of disobedience. And if you do, you're doing yourself and your child a great disservice. All right. Now, what can factors make this worse? Because, folks, this didn't exist much before 1950, did it? Did it? No you don't hear it written much about you don't hear it talked much about something changed in the United States something changed about the way we raise we raise children If you go to France today I saw an article about three or four years ago and it said their response to ADHD in France is it doesn't exist we don't allow it <laughs> 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 that is the way the French respond to ADHD. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they pointed out that they they use disciplinary measures that that change how children uh, deal or how they deal with children who struggle with this. They didn't describe the disciplinary measures, but I can imagine what they might be. So, what do we do differently as a society that we didn't do in 1950? When I was a child in school in 1950, I can remember that. Um, If if I was acting up, all that my teacher had to do was to look at me and say, Charles, if you don't straighten up, I'm calling your father. That was like the death sentence, you know, because she knew what would happen. And and my response immediately was, I would straighten up and do exactly what she wanted to do because the last thing in the world I wanted to do was go home and try to explain to my dad why he'd gotten a call from my teacher and then get the appropriate discipline that I needed. So now if teachers call, what happens to them? Well, like most of the time, they won't ever hear talk to a parent. You're going to get an answering machine. And if you do, the teacher is apt to get yelled at for uh, for not doing their job and taking care of my child and educating them appropriately. It's almost as if education has become a commodity in the United States that everyone else is responsible for except parents. You know, the only people responsible in the room for raising kids are Parents, the only people who are responsible for educating them are parents. If you want your child to read, you'd better teach them. I could read before I entered kindergarten at the age of five, and the reason why was because my mother sat down and taught me how to read. That's exactly why. Not, not the teacher. Teachers were great. I, I had great teachers. I went, I went to public school all the way until I graduated from high school as a senior in 1967, but I can tell you the schools were remarkably different prior, before then. So, we raise our children differently, and frankly, we should expect a different outcome. What other things contribute to this? Television. Children are watching from four to eight hours of television a day. Um, You know, my favorite bumper sticker that I have seen is uh, on the back of a car was, kill your television. You know, if you want to help your child who has ADHD symptoms, go home, get your hedge trimmers out, and cut your cable. Yeah, radical, isn't it? It's almost like I'm asking for something that's terrible. Yes, if you turn your television off and and they don't watch television more than 30 minutes a day, you know what will happen to them at school? Their whole brain slows down. The problem with kids and television is, is that they expect everything in life to happen and end in 30 minutes. World War II is one in 30 minutes, or at the most 60 minutes. And I can tell you that no teacher on the face of the earth can compete with it. Period. My mother would only let us watch 30 minutes of television a day. That was it. That was in in, in the 1950s, and and she wouldn't let us watch the Three Stooges. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Boom. That's right. We would we would do those things. You know, it's it's not. You know, people don't learn anything bad from television if they watch 13 murders an hour, do they? No. <laughs> No, they don't. But my mother recognized that if we watched the Three Stooges, we'd learn from them, and so we didn't get to watch the Three Stooges. And then there was that famous phrase that would come up every once in a while when we said, Mom, we're bored or something, although I don't ever remember saying that to my mother. She would say, go outside and play. She didn't lock the door behind us, but and I, and I had friends whose mothers did. But... <laughs> <laughs> but but we were told to go outside and play. And quite frankly, we wanted to. We did not wish to be inside. No matter how cold it was in the state of Indiana, we would put our winter coats on and go out and shite, go outside and shoot, shoot hoops. So television, computer gaming. I can tell you that I can think of no good outcome for children playing computer games. I can't think of any good outcome. There is some computer game training that the Chinese, that I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but the Chinese have used that helps children in the classroom. But it is aimed at training them to finish tasks and to be quiet in the, in the classroom. It, it, it's training. But computer gaming, you know, Warcraft, um, 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 you know, the kind of things where people are killed over and over and over again, the kind of games that all the guys who ever shot up children in school who were, um, uh, were watching before they went and did it, no, I can't think of anything, any good outcome that can possibly come from it. Um, so I would encourage you to cut your child off from that as well. You know what? How you know what will happen to your kid if he doesn't watch television until he's 18, or he doesn't play a computer game until he's 18? Do you know what the outcome for that's going to be? He'll grow up and be normal. Yeah, that, that, that's all. You know, we did. We grew up and we were normal. So. Uh, It seems to contribute to their inability to be able to sit in boring situations and pay attention. Ah, then there's the vanishing nuclear family. 50% of children today are born in single-parent homes. and When I was a kid, that was extraordinarily rare. You know, I had the luxury, the privilege of growing up in a household where my mom and dad lived together. It wasn't that they didn't have arguments every once in a while, but they did live together. The most memorable evening as a six-year-old that I've had was watching my mother chase my dad without a shirt on around the house with a pancake turner, smacking him on the back. <laughs> I don't know what he'd done, but, <laughs> but all the time he's running, he's laughing, you know, <laughs> laughing and screaming, laughing and screaming. Um, but my both my parents were there. You know, my mother worked maybe for um, nine months once when, when we were a little older, and um, but it came up to summer, and we were old enough that I could, we could be at home alone. And we, we were home alone on a, su- on a summer afternoon, and my brother and I were sitting at the kitchen table cussing at each other like sailors. All we heard was the screen door close. Yeah, my mother came in and heard us cuss like sailors. We were appropriately sanctioned for that. But my mother quit her job that day. And the reason why she quit her job that day was because she knew that if she had been there, we wouldn't have been cussing like that. Didn't mean we wouldn't cuss, but she would, we wouldn't have been cussing at that time. So, uh, it, endeavoring to get our, ourselves by whatever means. You know what? You know what the country needs to get this puzzle back together, get Humpty Dumpty back up on the wall? It, we need a revival. Oh, do we ever need a revival? Watching the political process just makes me say, oh, even so, come Lord Jesus, or please. Revival, you know, the gospel. Our nation is in desperate need of the same kind of revival that John Wesley preached to the Welsh coal miners. You know, if you want to change people's hearts and change people's lives and children's situations, we need to be preaching the gospel. All right, so the vanishing nuclear family. What else has changed? Public education changed. And don't take this as a criticism of teachers. I, I have all kinds of teachers in my family. I, I teach after fashion. And they are, they are dear, godly Christian men and women who spent most of their careers, our lives, uh, trying to teach and influence young minds, literally working as missionaries. in in many situations and in many ways. They have my deepest sympathy. They get little support from parents. There is no coherent discipline uh, policy in most of our schools. Teachers are viewed as referees at children's fights. When I was a kid, if you got in a fight at school, the dean would, you know, you would end up in the dean's office and he had a board that he used to, to educate you. And the reasons why you wouldn't get in a fight when you came back to school three days later, after your parents had dealt with you summarily for whatever it was that you decided to get into the fight over. And now they just you know they're supposed to stand there and watch until the police get there. So, um, I believe that the programs that were set in in motion to test children um, to determine if they were learning anything, um, and then, you know, give schools' grades and give teachers' grades have uh, were well intentioned, I really do, but they have been a disaster. Uh, teaching for a test does not mean that students learn anything, and and I and by and large, I don't I don't think they are learning all that much. The, you know, the most important thing that occurred was uh, in 1969, unelected men in black robes, and it were it was at the time men in black robes, decided that the uh, against the advice of the electorate, the majority of people who lived in the United States, that the Bible and prayer had no place in public education. Um, and, 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 and with the absence of both Bible and prayer, there was an, a, a, a very incremental increase uh, uh, in um, violence in our schools and... Um, and immorality in teenage pregnancy. If you look at the rise of teenage pregnancy, it starts it starts in 1960. And that was when we decided that we wouldn't teach kids the Ten Commandments anymore. You don't want kids to kill people uh, in school? Why don't you teach them thou shalt not kill and also convince them that there's a God in heaven who, who may hold them accountable for whatever they say, think, or do in life. If you don't do that, they certainly won't think that. When, our, when the founders came to these shores, they came so that they could worship by the dictates of, of their conscience. And they started schools because they believed that each of us were believer priests. That we, They believed in the priesthood of the believer, that, that there was no intermediary, no, inter, no, no intercessor between God and man save our Lord Jesus Christ. And they believed that because of that, it was essential for us to be able to read in order to read... The Bible. That was why we had schools, and as a result, we reached levels of of literacy in the United States that have been not not ever been seen before in history, and are now declining. You know, literacy in the United States is is declining as as we as we speak. Because why? Because there's no read to read no reason to read the Bible anymore, and and now everybody just gets their news by watching television, don't they? All right, then. Medication. I've already dealt with the issue that it's neither right nor wrong. I don't think it's wise. The risks, the risks of current medical treatment for um, um, for children and for adults, there are significant risks from taking amphetamines medically. It, they alter personality. Uh, they it can raise blood pressure. It has potential for heart valve problems. They are addictive. You know. I, I don't mean, it, how many different ways you can say something isn't a really good idea. But I think the most important thing is they rob the chance for the child and the adult to help the child learn how to adapt to a world that they're going to have to live in for the rest of their life. You know, how am I going to learn from now on? Am I going to learn only because I take a pill? Or am I going to learn how to learn in a different way that enables me to survive in, in life uh, from this point forward, what has been the outcome of, of this initiative in the United States for boys? Well, read Leonard Sachs, the, um, um, Boys Adrift. It's it's an excellent book. He's written another book afterwards about families, but Leonard Sachs, Boys Adrift. And in it, uh, it he's a family physician. He, he documents that prior to the introduction of amphetamines to deal with educational problems for boys, mostly, um, that men made up 60% of all admissions to college, uh, colleges and universities. And now we're down below 40%. You know, it's two girls for every boy. When young men come and tell me that they're struggling getting a date, you know what I tell them? Take the SAT. Yeah, take the SAT, go get a haircut, buy some new clothes, go to college, where there are, as the Beach Boys said, two boys for every girl. <laughs> yes, it's miserable for the women. It's great for the guys. Um, um, so um, the, um, the risks, I, th- I think, from an educational viewpoint are that boys, in spite of the fact that they are being medicated to do better, are not. You they, they know that you they, they know their outcomes are you know very much the um, uh, the prototypical uh, 35-year-old boy who um, is currently living in his parents' basement, still playing computer games and working part-time at Starbucks, and having his whole life subsidized by parents who you know are desperately afraid as to what they ought to do about his future. I, I always like the comedian who said that when he graduated from high school, his dad gave him a nickel and a newspaper. Back then a nickel you could make a phone call with. It was time to apply for a job that was what he was telling him. All right now how can we help uh, we can help help admonish the unruly out of 1 Thessalonians 5:12 through 14 those are people who have no goals we can help boys and girls have reasonable education goals. we can encourage the faint-hearted that's the parents and the teachers who don't exactly know how to deal with with the um, Uh, the uninterested fidgeting child, we can help the weak, we can help parents construct a setting in which children can succeed at learning. That's what we ought to be about. And then we need to be patient in the process. We need to exclude treatable medical problems. Um, This means that uh, there are some children who have uh, tonsils that need to be removed so they can sleep at night and, uh, you know, large Uh, cryptic tonsils. Uh, Children who have obstructive sleep apnea, when most children who do, are generally children who have uh, uh, large tonsils. Unfortunately though, a lot of children have obstructive sleep apnea because they are markedly obese. Um, And of course everybody's trying to blame Twinkies and Coca-Cola for uh, the uh, childhood obesity problems that we're seeing, but I'll tell you this, we had Twinkies and Pepsi when I was a kid. Um, the, The difference was go out and play. Yeah, it really was. You know, it was, it was, you can only watch television 30 minutes a day, and after that, you were outside and on your own. Childhood inactivity is the problem. It is not, um, it is not nearly so much what their diet is. Um, so then, uh, there are visual perception problems. Uh, children who can't see will not prosper in a, uh, in a classroom. Children with petty mal epilepsy, not very common, but uh, a real problem for people who don't seem to pay attention. Uh, lead toxicity, as I've talked about, anemia. Anemia can cause children to uh, have problems with keeping their feet still. And so it's something that could be mistaken for ADHD when, it, again, it is a lead tox, uh, an anemia problem. Children with dyslexia, all those things need to be considered. Then you need to consider the educational model and the classroom the child is going to face. Where are you going to put them in school? Uh, my suggestion for boys... Is, particularly boys who seem to have, like my cousin Jimmy, who would climb out a window rather than go to school. I can, I can remember when I went from kindergarten to the first grade. My kindergarten teacher did not like me. I know that. I, uh, and, and people say, well, how do you know? I, I mean, Kids do. You know, it's like, you talk to, if you're a kid and you are around adults, it doesn't take long before you figure out, well, this person has absolutely no use for me. And I think she didn't have much use for me because I could already read, I, you know, I just think. And she spent a whole semester trying to get me labeled as dyslexic, which I will never understand, but, but that was, that seemed to be her goal. Um, but I, I know that when I went from kindergarten to first grade, there was this major shift. Because when I went into the classroom and I turned around and looked in the back, there were no blocks. You know, in kindergarten, there are blocks. You know, there are toys to play with. And I thought to myself, oh, dear, this is a different, <laughs> this is going to be different. So as you look at the classroom, I, I, would, I would encourage you to consider a, a, a de-emphasis of early childhood academics. In other words, I would think a lot of boys would be best off not going to school until they're nine. Yeah, I do believe that. Uh, And and and, and that goes along with my contention that children need the quiet enjoyment of home. You know, children, when I grew up as a kid, I can remember waking up on Moreland Avenue and smelling breakfast. And I wasn't going anyplace, you know. I wasn't getting ripped out of bed at 2 in the morning and going to a daycare center, or 5 in the morning. I wasn't being being taken to a daycare center. I, I was at home. Uh, you know I know there are all kinds of social constraints that come to bear on that but I can tell you that when you change that you're going to get different children different different way of raising people different outcomes so the kids kids need the quiet enjoyment of home and and so I would say with kids that you think have a potential you know the the potential inability to sit down and pay attention I was a different kid I could do that you know I mean I, it was just the way I was wound it, it wasn't It wasn't that I was uh, special or anything. It was just I was different, I think, than a lot of kids. Most kids can't do that. And if you have a child like that, I think you would be better off homeschooling them until the age of nine and then putting them in a classroom that was appropriate to their ability to learn. I can tell you that most kids can learn everything they need to know that they would learn in the first grade in about three hours a day. Period. Most of schooling is not schooling. It is socialization. And and so, you, you know, in kids whose whose academic needs are rather compact, in three or four hours a day, they could be learning those things at home and enjoying the rest of their day. Um, someone, a teacher, with whom I agreed about a great deal, he, was, he brought a copy of Leonard Sacks' book into my office, you know, and I said, yes, I've read that book. I know about it. And we were talking about the difference between homeschooling and, and, and classroom schooling, and he said, well, don't you think it's important that they be socialized? And I, and I looked at him and I said, which is more important, that at, the, that at the third grade a child is reading at a third grade level or that they've been socialized to a third grade level? And he looked at me and said, reading. Yes, reading. And I can tell you that a child can learn to read at home just as well, if not better, than he can read in a classroom. And he will be less socialized, which quite frankly, in today's classrooms, may be a significant plus. All right. Um, All right, so then, choice of schools. What are your options? Well, you can homeschool a child. Not everybody can or ought to do that. Some folks are not made to teach children. I I just hate to tell you that, but there are some of you that, that just by reason of temperament, and that would be just about it, just by reason of temperament, probably have no business doing it. So then, there are classrooms. Uh, and you need you need to look as to, as to whether you're going to put them into a, tri- a traditional classroom or a less structured classroom. I can remember seeing a, um, a thing on CNN, and I just missed the guy's name. He was a physician who was running a school in New York someplace in New York City. And he was walking through the school one day, and he sees this poor teacher with a classroom of kids, and she is struggling to get them to sit down. That is really all that was happening in the classroom. You know, she's supposed to be teaching them the three R's. What are the three R's? Anybody here remember that? Right? Arithmetic. Yes, those were the three R's. There is no fourth S. You know, sitting is not a part of the curriculum, is it? And he stands there and watches for a while. And you know what he did? He did something rather radical. He took all the chairs out of the classroom. Yes. And guess what the kids' grades did? They went up. Why? because the teacher no longer had to try to figure out a way to get them to sit down. That ceased to be the object of education. What became the object of education was whether they actually learned something while they were in the room. So, you you know, maybe you need a more laid back classroom uh, to the child. Um, Then the question is is whether or not, um, uh, what what is the school's philosophy? Is it religious or non-religious? And I would tell you that, uh, I, I cannot conceive of the discipline or discipleship of children outside of religion. Uh, you, know, you know, absent religion, absent discipline. The whole concept, the whole idea comes right out of the Bible, where came almost all of our law, and, uh, and came most of our concepts for government. So, I, you, know, I, you know, when possible, I, I think the best outcome is for a child to be in a school that honors God, teaches them the Bible. Teaches them to pledge their allegiance to the flag and respect adults and and to respect authority. Respecting authority someday might save their life. You know, when the policeman tells them to sit down and be quiet, maybe they will, instead of getting themselves shot by getting in a fight with the officer. All right. Then, curriculum. What kind of curriculum would you you consider? Oops, I don't want to get out of that yet. Curriculum. We need more hands-on education. And as opposed to print curriculum. And I think the educational system has gotten this message. I know and I know a lot of places and a lot of school systems, the idea has already dawned on them that teaching to a test is not going to work in the long run. But consider consider this. I, I think that vocational education, we, we need to have a re-assessment re, a re, uh, of our education systems totally so that young men come out of school at the age of 18 with a skill that they could go to work with instead of coming out of school with the idea that they're going to go back into school again for a long time. Uh, our um, education used to do that. Our educational system used to do that. Right now, if you wanted to be a plumber, and I tell you, if you want to get a job, you know, consider being a plumber. Why would you want to be a plumber? Because they can't bubble wrap your toilet and send it to China. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> They can't, and and nobody's going to fix it and send it back, you, you know? I mean, if, if you're having trouble with your plumbing, you're going to need a plumber where? Right here. You're going to need a plumber right here, yes. And, um, and on the East Coast, plumbers make about $80,000 a year. Yeah, that's right. The plumber makes $80,000 a year. Now, if you want to be a plumber and you want to be a union plumber, my dad was a union steam fitter, a pipe fitter, which is a plumber, except he never worked on plumbing. He did big industrial chillers, refrigeration. And um, you become an apprentice. And on the East Coast, at the time I wrote this lecture, apprentices for plumbers made $40,000 a year. And it was, I think, a four or it was a five-year program. You were in the program for five years making $40,000 a year. And when you finished, you know how much money you owed anybody? None, zero. And so you went from $50,000 to $80,000 a year, bang, just like that, or some, you know, probably more incrementally, but you went there. Consider the fate of a person who decides to become an elementary education teacher today. What's the difference? It's $100,000 in debt. And when you graduate, how much do you make? 35, something like that. How long is it going to take you to pay it off? 30 years or, or something like that, yes. We need to reassess the way our educational system is producing people to do skills and have skills that for things that we need done. Now, how can we help the adults? I guess I have to start talking faster, don't I? But you'd probably give me five minutes or more, wouldn't you? Oh yes, good. All right. First, you need to give adults hope. First Corinthians 10:13 deals with. Four problem areas. First Corinthians 10.13 says that there's no test taken you, but such as is common to man. That's good for parents, isn't it? It is good for a parent to know that there is hope in the middle of a situation of dealing with a child who is distracted and who is distractible. And this is where that pamphlet from Rita Jameson comes in really very handily that I urged you to get. When it comes to the issue of inattention to detail, Rita says that uh, a child who can't pay attention that child's goals can be to get the work done and get it over so they can go on to do something else. That doesn't mean they're going to do it well. That doesn't mean they're going to do it completely. That just means that they're going to make an effort to get, get enough of it done so that, you won't, so that they can turn it in. Others may want to finish first to win. Others may rush through that work to avoid the consequences of not getting it done, and all of them have the wrong motive, don't they? Why do, what motive do we need to be teaching children who are in school? yeah. Yeah, that's what Rita said. And I thought, well, that's a rocket. You know, here we have somebody who's looking at kids who are in school and saying, you know, that first grader needs to know that they need to want to glorify God with their life more than they want to breathe. That their purpose in being in school isn't to figure out how to get the work done and go out and play at recess. Their first purpose in school needs to be, I want to glorify God with my life. Then um, she said that uh, children who struggle Uh, with not finishing tasks and not finishing instructions. She said that children need to learn that God intends for them to finish their work. It's a Galatians 6-9 event. They need to learn that they shouldn't become weary in doing good. And at the proper time, they'll reap if they don't give up. The question she said for children is, who do they want to please, God or themselves? For children who aren't listening, those children need to be taught what the Bible says about listening. What did James say? We ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, right? Quick to hear. They need to hear that. And she said that when she talked with kids who had trouble listening, what she would do was make sure that their eyes got locked with hers, and then she would lower her voice and talk in an audible whisper. Now, my dear cousin Claudia, sitting up there, used to do this with her uh, you know, large uh, junior, seniors, uh, uh, high school choir. You know, they knew that their toast was done, whenever Claudia lowered her voice and started talking very quietly to them because she was getting ready to tell them how their life was going to end. <laughs> and she said, the quieter I talked, the more they leaned in to hear. Right, yes. Rita says you ought to do that with kids. Um, when children don't listen, she said, they are generally doing what they want to do instead of listening to others. Children who interrupt... Uh, are ill-mannered and and need to learn to think of other people first. What biblical principle would that might come from? Try Philippians chapter 2. You know, not thinking of ourselves first, thinking of others instead. A whole different idea of how to teach these children biblical skills that apply to the struggles that they have. Then you need to change parental goals. Parental goals need to become, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want a perfect kid. If you can save parents from raising perfect children, you'll make their life better, and you will make the child's life better. It's really dangerous to try to raise perfect children. You need to teach parents a Romans 8:28 and 29 view of the adversive nature of raising children. Raising children is a job, period. And at some times, it is difficult. At some times, it is heart-rending. But it's still your job, and you are called to do it. And what is supposed to happen as you do it from a Romans 8, 28, and 29 viewpoint? You tell me, what's supposed to happen as you raise those children? You are to become more like who? Yes, that's what your children are for. That's why they are, that's why they're there. You know, before we were born and before the earth was created, God knew us, and he knew our children. And he decided then that the goal for our lives would be to become more like Christ. And so, so he gives his kids, he gives his children. Are you an impatient person? God gives you sons. Yeah, do you lack compassion? He gives you daughters. When you see children in that light, you don't have to be angry, fearful, or worried about the outcome of their education. Instead, you can grow and change in the trial of parenting and then minister others out of that growth. Always keep in mind that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So when you take that little five-year-old who uh, you love and who you think is perfect and, and doesn't hardly ever smell or sweat, and, and you're teaching them the Ten Commandments, and but they don't know Christ as their Savior, and you're teaching them that they should be obeying you because God tells them to, what are you raising? You're raising a hypocrite, aren't you? Yes, entirely so. Not that you shouldn't. You should endeavor to do those things. Why? Because we raise those children that way in hope, don't we? And what's the hope? The hope is that eventually they will see what exactly they are, sinners, as we teach them the gospel of grace all the way through, and that when they are saved, they will suffer the noetic effect of regeneration, right? Yes, there is a noetic effect of regeneration. You accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside your heart, and it becomes really possible to do the things that the Bible tells us that we ought to do, doesn't it? And then, you're going to have to make some Romans 6.16 choices. I've already talked about them for the most part. Turning off television, computers, internet. Technology can be a blessing. It can also be a curse. You should make reading the source of their information and reading out of books, not reading off of computer screens. It does something different to your brain. I encourage you to have your children read out of books. Uh, you know the, I think the worst thing that's happening in education right now is the uh, advocate uh, putting all of their textbooks on iPads. This is a, I think this is going to be an educational disaster down the road for lots of different reasons. Um, there are technological advances that can help with kids who have ADHD smart watches that remind them when they're supposed to be places it can be of abuse. Uh, there are, Apps and things like wake-up lights, lights, you know, you, you, um, you set the lights to come on in their room before the alarm goes off, and it just gradually wakes them up. You're, you're using their diurnal rhythm to do it. Shared calendars, so you can look on the calendar and know whether they actually went and did their homework and turned it in like they said they would. Um, classroom changes that you can do um, in uh, a large study. Uh, published this past summer what they found out that daily report cards between teachers and parents would help the child understand what the differences in their behaviors needed to be uh, and reduced their inattention and their hyperactivity. Um, yes, right there. Uh, and then, always understanding the connection between movement and learning. Uh, kinesthetic learning. It's like that scene in um, oh, What's the one with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, where they're cowboys? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, yeah. yeah. Robert Redford is trying to shoot the target and he can't hit and he finally says, can I move? And so he moves and he shoots the eyes out of it. You know, His ability to shoot was connected to the fact that he had learned to shoot while he was moving, not learning to shoot while he's standing still. Examining the child's home structure, And discipline and making changes that help the child, generally, in my experience, in dealing with homes that struggle with children, usually it's reinserting the father back into the home as best you can, reinserting male authority back into the home, and putting the father in a position that is biblical. Now, I know that is not always possible. It's not going to always be possible where single mothers make up half the kids, half the homes in the the country. But... That is where the church comes in, isn't it? That is where uh, grandfathers and Awana programs and things like that become very important in the lives of boys. Want to make a difference in a boy's life? Take him to Awana. Take take that single mother's kid to Awana and teach him Bible verses. Teach him to memorize Bible verses. It's really sneaky, but eventually it works. Um, Then, you can teach your uh, kids skills that help. You can teach them how to use a planner. You can teach them... Uh, biblically, how to make good decisions. I can't talk at a length about it. You can teach them inattention to detail or attention to detail. I tell you, pick one thing at a time. You know, if you want to try to help a kid learn how to deal with detail, pick one task at a time, most, you know, and, and have them finish it and then move on to the next one. Uh, when With children who struggle with anger, the Bible speaks expressly about anger. And if you want to understand anger, go buy Robert Jones's book over there. Uh, um, Mm, what's the... It's anger. Uprooting anger. Yes, uprooting anger. It is the definitive book written on anger from in a biblical counseling viewpoint. Uh, selfishness and idolatry. Teach the child Christian service. Put the child in Christian service. And then where do we really end up in life with children who struggle with ADHD? It's Matthew 11:28 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart and my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Raise your children um, in, in a way that honors God and, and biblically, and give God the credit for the outcome and the responsibility for the outcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for the time that I could be together with my friends. Lord, I, uh, I pray that, um, that they would take the things that we've learned and use them to help parents and children. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.